Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is my colleague here at the Economics Department at George Mason University, John Nye. He holds the Bastiat Chair in the university's Mercatus Center and is the author of War, Wine, and Taxes, The Political Economy of Anglo-French Trade, 1689 to 1900. John, welcome to EconTalk. Hi, Russ. Thanks for being good to having me here. John, in your book, War, Wine, and Taxes, you have a very different take on the history of trade policy in Britain and France from the traditional one. So I want to talk about that traditional view first. How do most historians and economists look at the British and French economies of the 19th century and their trade policy? The traditional view is that beginning in the mid-1800s, the British began to move towards free trade, and the decisive event was the repeal of the Corn Laws in the 1840s. From that point on, it is said, Britain decisively moved to free trade and was the first and, for a while, the unique free trader in Western Europe. In contrast, the French were, throughout the 19th century, supposed to be intransigently protectionist, with a variety of prohibitions on products and services that were imported into the French economy, and that later moved, perhaps, to moderate protection, but that they were never as enthusiastic nor as open about free trade as the British were. We talked about this uh, in passing in the podcast with William Bernstein. The, the Corn Laws that were repealed in, I think, 1842 or so. Correct. Um, we, the word corn is misleading. It was really a, a, a set of somewhat complex laws that – uh, raised the price of grain Correct. In, in England. Mm-hmm. And the repeal of that lowered the price of grain and I assume also made the import of grain uh, attractive and feasible. It freed up both the import and export of grain, basically, but predominantly importing, of course. So it was very important. It was, it was a big issue for agricultural workers. It was a big issue for manufacturer workers for feeding their, themselves and their families. And I think part of the reason that is the received story is the intellectual history of, of free trade coming out of England and the starting with Adam Smith, his uh, opposition to the mercantilist ideas. Uh, the whole essence of the wealth of nations was trying to understand what the true source of wealth was. It wasn't silver and gold. And so a nation, Smith argued, didn't have to be obsessed with running a trade surplus, that that was a mistake. And then we come to Ricardo in 1817 who in his principles book uh, argues – you'd think it'd be half the book. It's not. Uh, for what came to be known, wasn't known in, at the time, as comparative advantage, the idea that a nation would thrive by trading for things that other nations could make more cheaply and that this intellectual underpinning uh, inspired uh, Richard Cobden and others to make this uh, bravura intellectual case for free trade. The, the, the tariffs had to fall and England became this great – uh, free trade nation, and as a result, of course, for those of us who are fans of free trade, which I am, uh, the economic success of England throughout the last half of the 19th century is seen as a vindication of the virtues of free trade. Uh, but as you point out in your book uh, rather dramatically, that story is not just 
eh, somewhat stylized, it's in many ways false. So give us your revisionist take on uh, Britain and France's economies in the 19th century and their trade policies. Well, perhaps the best way to get into my book is really to, talk, to start with the, the, the example you mentioned of Adam Smith and his condemnation of the mercantile system. In the 18th century, Adam Smith condemns the variety of tariffs that the British had to limit trade into Britain and to protect domestic production. And it's interesting, of course, because at the time Adam Smith was writing, most of the Corn Laws did not exist. That is, the Corn Laws that were removed in the 1840s were predominantly creations of the late 18th and early 19th century. Just after the publication of The Wealth of Nations. Exactly. And interestingly enough, many, not all, but many of the most significant tariffs that Adam Smith condemns right there and clearly in The Wealth of Nations remain after repeal of the Corn Laws and after the so-called removal of the bulk of British tariffs. So that's, that's, a, that's a clue right there that something is not quite right. The second thing, which will then get us into my book, is this, the famous example of David Ricardo. Um, those of you who know David Ricardo's work will perhaps remember that Ricardo's example of comparative advantage is the export by the British of cloth to Portugal in exchange for importing Portuguese wine. The problem with that example is it's a horrible example of comparative advantage because <laughs> Portugal was an extremely inefficient producer of wines. Portuguese wine was imported to Britain as a result of tariffs favoring Portugal quite specifically. And the Methuen Treaty of 1704, that is to say the changes from 1703 to 1704 leading up to the Methuen Treaty, led to Portugal receiving a preferential tariff Relative from, to France. Relative to everybody. Yeah. Not only relative to France, but relative to everybody. That they had a guaranteed preferential tariff in exchange for importing British cloth. That's an incredible irony. I, I just have to interrupt and say when, when you – anytime – I've never heard the phrase, I don't think, uh, on this podcast or maybe anywhere for those of you who know the work of David Ricardo. Uh, few do. Uh, his work is uh, extremely opaque. Uh, I encourage people to go to the Library of Economics and Liberty, econlib.org, and put in the phrase comparative advantage in our search engine. It will pull up the page of uh, Ricardo's principles where he outlines the Portuguese wine and British wool example. Uh, but the word comparative advantage is actually not in there, as I want to point out. But uh, it's been embedded there for the search engine to find because, of course, that's what many people – Maybe the only thing that people read Ricardo for, but what you're pointing out is extraordinary, and I, I didn't know it. Uh, that the example that he used, this this famous stylized example that becomes really the um, the, the one of the common textbook stories, is uh, flawed essentially because it's actually a case of uh, a pattern of trade that only exists because of protectionism. You're suggesting, so. Uh, why don't you briefly mention why that happened? Why did in the early 18th century, 1703, why did Portugal get that extremely preferential tariff relative to other uh, wines? Well, what happened? If, 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 if I may, I'd actually like to come back to my book and then I'll yeah, come to that sure. because they're quite relevant. That is to say, so where my book comes in is that in the 19th century, when Britain supposedly moved to freer trade, um, I actually looked up, I believe I was the first person to actually look at the statistics comparing average tariffs in Britain and France. That is to say, average tariffs is a technical measure where you simply add up the value of all um, customs duties 
divided by the value of imports. So that gives you some average. That is to sort of say, if just if you have a million dollars worth of imports and you're collecting half a million dollars worth of, of tariffs, th- then in, in you have a cust- an average uh, tariff rate of 50%. We should mention that the, the empirical challenge is that there might be a 100% or 200% tariff even on a particular item uh, that's never imported. Correct. So the fact that you wouldn't want to just go across each item, take the tariffs, and then average the tariffs, you want to have some measure of the volume of trade as well. That's correct. So that measure, which is crude, but very informative about some rough idea of how protectionist a country is. And so when you look at that, one of the striking things about that, when you graph the average tariffs in Britain and France, one of the things you see is that, for one thing, British average tariffs do fall throughout the 19th century, and they, f- they do fall after repeal of the Corn Laws. However, they start from a very, very high level. In contrast, the French average tariffs remain below, z- below those of Britain until about the mid-1870s. So put it another way, for three quarters of the 19th century, and for something like three decades after the repeal of the Corn Laws, the French had lower average tariffs than the British. Now, there's a lot of reasons why average tariffs are not the only, not, not the ideal measure of tariffs, and the appendix of the book goes into a detailed statistical model trying to explain more fully why Britain was, or calculate more accurately why Britain, or show Britain was, in fact, less of a free trader in France. Right, you, can, you can criticize the average tariff as a as the only measure, and you look at a bunch of different measures and find that, in general, it's hard to argue. That's the, right. That is to say, if that's to say, if you follow my calculations, uh, under using a whole variety of different measures and for a whole variety of different reasons, under sort of any kind of weighting you make, it looks like the the British have higher tariffs than the French do for much of the nineteenth century, even after the repeal of the Corn Laws. There's another aspect that y- you hinted at in that discussion just now that that I noticed when I read the book which I thought was rather uh, was rather dramatic as well uh, so let me try to describe it <clears throat> let me add let me summarize what you, what you just said if make sure I get it right and then add a, a aside that I think is important so through three quarters of the 19th century France has lower tariffs than than Britain so the level is lower. Both nations mm-hmm. over that period of roughly 1800 to 1870 have falling tariffs. Correct. But the thing that struck me that you didn't mention, which is which I learned from your book, is that the fall doesn't start with the Corn Laws. It does. It's true. After the Corn Laws, tariffs fall. They don't fall abruptly, as as this traditional story has it that that the scales fell from the eyes of the British Parliament and they realized, oh my gosh, we have these horrible tariffs. They're impoverishing our people. We need to. We need to free up our economy and we'll grow. In fact, they fell, they fell slowly and steadily from 1840 to 1870 to a, lo- a very low level by 1870. But it took a while, as you say, because they started at a high level. But the fall started before that. Correct. In fact, uh, one of my favorite tests of a statistical claim of causation, it's not, a, it's not a sophisticated test, but it's a good place to start, is give me a time series of data. So give me, in this case, the average tariff level uh, in England or France in the 19th century. And don't tell me the time periods. And see if by looking at the data, you can pinpoint where the Corn Laws say repeal was, because obviously, from everything I've learned as a schoolboy, 
not that I learned it as a schoolboy, but that we, we take as <laughs> you went to a very good school. I can tell. I you. didn't. Yeah, I didn't learn it as a schoolboy. But the, the sort of received sort of standard story is you would see a a, a big dip downward in it around the 1840s, and when you saw that dip, you'd say, "Aha, that must be when they repealed the Corn Laws." But in fact, if you look at the data that you that you'd calculate. What you see is a there's there's ups and downs, but there's a slow, steady fall throughout the first three quarters of the 19th century in both England and France, and there's no sudden drop downward. It's uh, basically a slow, steady fall, and it starts very, very far before the uh, Corn Law repeal. That's correct. And moreover, with the French case, what's striking about it is average tariffs in France are quite low. That is to sort of say they're something like they're at the level of the British in the 1840s or 50s by the 1820s, so that they, the French start from a much lower level. The, the, the French path is a bit choppier, but that, all, that has to do with the fact that they start from a lower level, and the French data are a little more problematic for a variety of reasons. So two questions. One, you say you're the first person to do this. I think you're, I believe you. Why didn't, how did this received wisdom come, to the incorrect story come to be perceived as the correct story? That's number one. And number two, if it's not the Corn Law dramatic intellectual triumph of Cobden combined with Smith and Ricardo, what might explain that pattern uh, of England having higher rates and both nations uh, slowly becoming more free trade oriented as the 19th century uh, progressed? Well, you've act actually asked very different questions with very different answers. So let me let me try yeah, to take a let, at a time. let me let me let me uh, t t take time to answer those sort of differently. The first one is one I've thought about thought about. Why did people not know this before? And there, there's an obvious, there, there, or, or rather there's a trivial answer, and there's sort of a deeper answer. The trivial answer, I think, is that it's because the British told us they were free trade. That is to say, the British told us they were free trade, um, and they did remove lots of tariffs. But it turns out, many of the tariffs they removed weren't items that were not significant for trade. That, 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 that's one. A, a more serious answer is that because the focus on trade and on trade policy, particularly in the 19th century, was on industrial products, and Britain moved very quickly, in addition to the corn laws, to remove tariffs on manufacturers and on industrial goods of all kinds, they argued very strongly for free trade in these areas, except for the fact that Britain had a comparative advantage in industrial products. The equivalent today would be like sort of saying the... Japanese are very good at producing cars and electronics. And the Japanese were to sort of say, let's remove tariffs on all manufactured products or in all industrial products. Oh, by the way, we're going to keep a few hundred percent tariffs on rice and things of that sort. Right. We would not think that they're free traders because J Japanese import or potentially could import a great deal of rice. And that brings us to our earlier point again that you don't want to just look at the printed uh, tariff rates. Tariff rates in the in the manual of, of customs regulations, even though a politician might wave it about and say, "Look at all the tariffs we've eliminated. Correct. We're free traders." If they're not, if they weren't binding, Correct. if they weren't important, then it's not much of a move toward free trade. And indeed, to to the extent that many of the British tariffs seem to be on things that people said, "Oh, well, they're not that important." They were things like wine and sugar and coffee and rum and tea. But it turns out that these were a very important part of British trade. Indeed, they were an important part. They had been an important part of British trade going back to the 1600s at least. And this was, in fact, the center of the controversy. That is to say, tariffs in these areas were precisely the things that Britain and France were fighting about 
from the mid-1600s onward. Well, I want to come back to that question of insignificance because it is one of my first thoughts. So, But finish your, 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 the second question I asked you. Do you have any thoughts on the overall trend? I what, think what's, if it wasn't this intellectual triumph, obviously it played a role. But if it wasn't Ricardo and Cobden, but rather something underlying the, the political economy, some other forces, do you have any thoughts on what those were? Because they have to be the same right. my, in my, both places. My big feeling is a combination of two things. It's a combination of genuine technological transformation in the Western world. That is, technological transformation in the Western world is, is pushing countries to be more diverse and broader in their production, yeah. which is also encouraging more trade, which is sort of undermining sort of attempts to restrict that trade. So the costs of protectionism were higher. That's right. And so, therefore, it was rational to reasonable to lower them. Yes, and I, and I also think to a, a very large extent that there was a kind of general political economy movement all over the world. That is, there's a genuine understanding that more open trade was beneficial, not, not least because that there were interest groups that benefited from this open trade. So, for instance, I think the industrialists wanted cheap food and cheap grain because they thought that that would sort of be good for their workers, which would be a good trade-off. So that there, that there were some, that is to say, in both France and Britain, there were increasingly movements of people who understood that opening up trade at some margins had repercussions for other industries. That is to sort of say, if one thought very narrowly about trade with respect to say, that is to say, even if you were makers of cloth, opening up and trade in grade had repercussions for your workers, which would have repercussions for your ability to export cloth. Say. Sure. So I think those things were very important. I also think financial markets were becoming better. And I think with the rise of well-functioning capital markets, you also find it a lot easier. Capital is more mobile, labor is more mobile, and I think it's a lot harder to sort of shut down trade in, in, in that regard. Okay, so let's go back to this question of significance. Your, your book has uh, wine in the title. It's War, Wine, and Taxes, and it would seem that so what you're suggesting is that Britain removed lots of tariffs on lots of things and it's moved toward freer trade, but it, those were not so important. Uh, those were in the s- statutes, but they weren't necessarily important in, in their economy, although they did move toward freer trade. Oh, no, overall. they were important. I, I wouldn't say that at all. I, I, w- I wouldn't say they weren't important. I would merely sort of say they didn't remove some of the most important ones that remained. They did remove many important tariffs, but not all of them. So say over the 1800 to 1850 period, when the standard story is at the beginning they're protectionist and at the end they're free traders. It actually – they weren't so free trade in 1850 because they left tariffs on certain things such as wine, which had a big impact on France. And one – a modern – And on Britain. And on Britain. So a modern would say, well, come on. What's the big deal? You know, wine, it's a little – it's a tiny part of, of a person's budget. It can't be such an important – economic factor. Come on, you're going to tell me that the that the tariff on wine was a was a crucial had a crucial impact on these two economies, but you I think you will. So go ahead. Well, this is the one way to think about it. And so this is the point. In studying this, I wanted to understand how is it that people had overlooked this and how important the role of of booze in general was in in the economy and in in the fiscal and commercial policy. And in so doing, I kept so it became like a detective story. I kept following the history backwards and backwards and backwards. And I read various things that is to say, wine historians had written a bunch of things and fiscal historians had written a bunch of things and commercial historians had written, and they never quite put it together. Well, it turns out here, here's kind of the, the short version of it. If you go back to the 17th century, that is, you go back to the time of Louis Fourteenth, and if you look at that time period, Britain and France were at odds. 
in the 1600s, but during that time period, Britain had a massive trade deficit. Britain had a massive trade deficit, mostly with one country. That country was France. And most of their trade deficit was in things like wine, but also certain luxury goods like silks, linens, and woolens. All right? In that time period, in the late 1600s, there was a very great pressure on the British by protectionists to kind of raise tariffs and change things in order to limit trade with France, because the protectionists felt that if we could limit trade, we would have a surplus, and surplus would be a good free thing. But there were that's the mercantilist viewpoint. The mercantilist viewpoint was the trade surpluses were good things; trade deficits were very, very bad things. However, the British aristocrats liked wine. Wine was an important part of the consumption of the British upper classes, and it was starting to spread lower down. Perhaps I would sort of say to the upper middle classes. The British imported a great deal of wine. You have to understand that the British in the late 1600s were roughly a quarter the size of France by population. Today, the countries are much closer in approximate size. But at that time, France, France was... France was four times more populous than England. France was five times as big as England and about four times as big as England, Scotland, and Wales combined. Hmm. So it was, it was just enormous. So, so, and, and, the British, and yet the British imported a great deal of wine. Suddenly, what happens? In 1688, you have the Glorious Revolution, and in 1689... Explain what the Glorious Revolution is. The Glorious Revolution is basically the King of England is deposed and is replaced by William of Orange, that is to sort of say uh, the House of Hanover takes over for, for Britain, and, and they, there's, there's basically a coup in Britain, and basically you have a, a change in power so that William of Orange comes to take power in England in 1689, and you have a very different arrangement in which there's a more of a power-sharing agreement between Parliament and the Crown, which leads to a kind of transformation in the way Britain does business, so that it, it paves the way towards both a more restrained power of the Crown, but ironically, an increased power of the state. That is to sort of say, finding a compromise between the state and the crown, I mean, between, sorry, between parliament and the crown, actually made for a powerful Britain in the 18th century. One of the things that did, for instance, was that unify their ability to credibly spend money and raise debt, because now that there would be some belief that they would not incur debt or spend money unless they could raise the taxes to match, match it. And that's part of my story. That is to sort of say, what happened... From 1689, from 1689 to about 1713, 1714, Britain was at war with France throughout almost the entire period. So for a quarter century, Britain was at war with France. There were two wars in succession. The first is sometimes called the Nine Years' War or the War of the League of Augsburg, and the following that is the War of Spanish Succession. Not going to get into all the details, but basically what that means is that for a quarter century, wine and French products are basically not entering the British economy at all. Partly as a result in the beginning of that period because of the, ta- the tariffs that were put on. No, 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 no. The tariffs, there were tariffs before then, but they were not really stopping it. It was the, it was the sheer cessation the of trade. Okay, so the war stops the trade. But I thought you said that the, that the mercantilists they're were They're trying worried. to put tariffs. They're, they're, okay. not, they're okay. not successful in doing it. They have high tariffs, but not enough to crush the French trade. Because there's still a lot of French wine coming in, but then the war comes in 1689. Right. And all of a sudden, there's nothing coming okay. in for about a quarter century. And then? And then what happens... During this oh, period, by the way, when we passed the crucial year of seventeen oh three, seventy three oh four. That's so. That's, so you you want to mention that now? Uh, no, I don't uh, want to forget Portugal. No, no. I'm going <laughs> to explain what happens during this quarter century. Okay. So during this quarter century, there's no wine coming in. Booze is very important. I'll explain that later. If you like, I'll talk about it now. But why? Talk about it now. All right. Well, I, I think one of the things you have to understand is that 
alcohol is a fairly important product. There's alcoholic beverages of all kinds are fairly important products. These are not just popular. They're not just popular products um, in the sense that they're, they're, fun, they're fun to drink. But in many ways, um, they wouldn't probably have seen it this way, but in many ways, I would argue that alcoholic products were probably the safest drink that the average person could drink at that time period. <laughs> <laughs> that is to say, water was often polluted or not very clean. There was no wide, you know, this is, this is pre-pasteurization of milk and that yeah. wasn't widely available. There's no fruit juice. Uh, coffee and tea have yet to become common staples in, in most of the Western world. Bottled water was hard to find. <laughs> yes. How, how, did, how did they were, live? How bottles they live? were hard to find, I believe. What did joggers carry? I guess they carried a, a stein <laughs> uh, or a flagon of something. So it's not surprising that booze of all kinds was very, very important. Booze provided both um, nutrition and as I just have said, because of the way it's produced, it's actually relatively safe to drink. Um, in fact, well up until the 19th century, people often talked about beer as uh, or, or, or as being part of the daily bread. Yeah, it was workers. a medicinal, in a real sense, unlike the way it's joked. People joke about alcohol now. Oh, no, no, it's not just medicinal. People thought about it as a, as a staple. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean look, 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 look. Um, uh, research by Dutch historians, for instance, indicates that in the, the early 1700s, that is in the 18th century, uh, one of the largest items, perhaps the largest item in the budget of Dutch orphanages, was beer. So this is for little kids. So I mean, you know, so 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 there's like low alcoholic beer was the largest single item of the budget for Dutch orphanages, and I wouldn't be surprised if that was true. If that wasn't true for many other parts of Europe as well, yeah, it could be a form of behavioral control there. Well, yes, that's keep, right. <laughs> keep mildly uh, sedated. Well, the way I think about it is, it's behavioral control plus nutrition. Yeah, sort of. Well, it's, <laughs> it's a wonder drink. It's a wonder drink, exactly. <laughs> okay, so so anyway, it's but, so but there's no wine coming in. All right. Wine is very important. The British are importing huge amounts of it. Suddenly, there's no wine. There's People alternative. People are drinking beer. They're drinking beer. They're drinking local booze. When you say local booze, what do that you That is mean? to whiskey. sort of say whiskey, um, or early kinds of certain types of gin, although gin becomes much more important later on, and a sort of home-brewed ciders of various kinds. In addition, there's, there, there is stuff coming in from Portugal. Portugal stuff is very bad. Portugal actually makes very bad wine. Port is not, as we know it today, is not invented till the very end of the 17th century. And is port called port because it comes from Portugal? Yes, Oporto. Okay, I didn't know that. It's good to know. <laughs> There's no end to what you can learn from listening to you talk. Okay. <laughs> All right. But the, the, the thing is that the Portuguese actually make a very bad low-grade wine, which is sort of like a lower-quality version of the Spanish wines. And that of that era, and it doesn't travel very well at all. In fact, one of the reasons for the, develop, the development of fortified wines is that many wines couldn't survive travel. So what they would do is literally dunk brandy in wine to fortify it, uh -huh. to make it survive. We say survive, it would, it would arrive at the end of the trip and it'd be spoiled. It'd be spoiled or spoiled very easily, uh -huh. exactly, things of that sort. And, and so what well, happens... Okay, well, quick question, yeah. Was, is there any British wine? No, not at this time. Okay. But... Portuguese wine is effectively British wine. That's the interesting thing. Why? Because large parts of Portugal are under British control. There at are, this point, at We're this point, the late like sixteen, like late sixteen hundreds, early seventeen hundreds, there are there are areas of Portugal known as factories. But the term factory doesn't mean what it means today. That's to say it's a it's sort of a processing zone. It's where stuff is produced or or made for re-export by Britain. 
And it's controlled by the British, often with British workers, British sailors, British officers. Things that, in fact, they had agreements with Portugal, which sort of say, for instance, if a British sailor commits a crime in a factory on Portuguese territory, he's judged by British judges, not by Portuguese judges. So these areas almost don't even have Portuguese sovereignty almost. Mm -hmm. Well, many of these factories switch to the production of wines for and the alcohol British market. for the British market. Uh -huh. And in fact, they're produced by Brits, but handled by British merchants, put on British ships, and sold to Britain. That so, explains why it's not very good. Well, Britain's never been a great <laughs> wine-producing nation. Well, it also <laughs> explains why the fact that even to this day, if you go by port, a lot of the most famous ports have good Portuguese names like Sandemans, mm. or Dao, or Ware. That is to sort of they have English names mm -hmm. because their English houses uh, played an important role in founding these 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 these, these famous uh, wineries. Okay. And so these this stuff goes to Britain. Portugal is not a major exporter of wine. They cannot export to any other country except Britain. And in fact, they export to Britain precisely because they fill the gap of the wine tariffs, and then that me, of the French wine of the French wine that's not available. That's not available, and. In addition, that relationship between Britain and Portugal is institutionalized in the Methuen Treaty, which guarantees that the Portuguese will receive a tariff that is never to exceed two-thirds of the tariff on any other country. On wine. On or wine. Just wine. On, on, on booze. Yes, uh -huh. just on wine and, and, wine and, and spirits. Uh-huh. Um, there's slightly complicated differences for spirits, but it's basically the same thing. In exchange for which they must receive British cloth free of tariffs. Hmm. So as an example, so while I'm a great believer in free trade and comparative advantage, that has to be <laughs> one, of one of the worst <laughs> examples in comparative advantage Ricardo in history. Could have chosen. <laughs> well, <laughs> it leads another detective puzzle. I, well, I don't want to stay, stay on it, but it, it does raise the question of why Ricardo chose that one as his uh, uh, archetypal example. But let's, let's move on. <laughs> okay. so, so France... Well, but French, so let me, let me finish the story. So this is important. Yeah. So what happens is that so the 1713, the war's over. When the war's over, one of the proposals in Britain is to go back to the status quo ante, to go back to having open trade with France, even though with some tariffs. But now, think about it. There's these new groups that are making money hand over fist. Portuguese wine. Portuguese wine. Or the, beer. And beer. The brewers domestic, are making... Domestic. Domestic. domestic makers of producing. beer like the fact that there's no French wine Correct. competing with them. And domestic spirits makers are very happy about that as well. The possibility of opening up trade with France again mobilizes the industry. The British Portuguese wine merchants, the beer makers, the, the various uh, brewers, the various distillers all get together and lobby the crown. You can't do this. You can't have free trade with France and wine. You're going to destroy British industry that has been built up over the last quarter century. And so... The government obliges by imposing new, for the first time, onerously high tariffs on French wines. At what level, roughly? It's, here's the tricky thing. It's a very high level. It's so high, but it's unlike other tariffs. They're not percentage tariffs. They're fixed tariffs. Yeah, that's important. Okay? Think about this. The better way to think of the equivalent would be say something like, imagine a tariff of $20 a bottle or $10 a bottle at wholesale. They were volume tariffs. What do volume tariffs do? Volume tariffs destroy the cheapest wines. Because you're going to pay a fixed 
if you're going to pay a fixed rate per tariff. That's correct. So imagine that there's a bottle of wine that's normally would be a dollar wholesale. If you have, say, a $20 tariff on, on that wine, that's $21. It's non-competitive now with a lot of other products. With a $10 bottle of wine, well, let's go through the example. So a $10 bottle of wine becomes a $30 bottle correct. of wine. So instead of being 10 times more expensive, it's only now 50% more expensive. That's right. And it becomes relatively more attractive. So it distorts right. consumption towards the high end. That's correct. And uh, which means, of course, that the low end, exactly, uh, the alternative is still beer. Correct. <laughs> and at the low end, the alternative is the very cheapest products from other countries and beer. And beer is the really b the, the big one. And in fact, what you see is as a result of the tariffs, French exports to Britain fall by 95% compared to what they were before the war. Okay. So it re really effectively, except for the very high-end luxury, the highest level of, of, of income people in England, That's right. the great wine lovers uh, at the, with, who can afford it, they still consume a little bit of French wine, but everyone else, it's basically as if the war were still going on. That's correct. It essentially destroys the cheap market in wine. And which then leaves things open for beer while preserving the market for the very best wines. And you argue that that explains, which I love, um, why Britain is a beer-drinking nation rather than a wine-drinking nation. That's correct. As opposed to some – we have this cultural image of John Bull and the, the, the British pub. But that's uh, – it could have been otherwise. It could have been the French wines – it could have been the British wine cellar and the and – the, um, and some other image. In, indeed, many, many calculations would suggest that if not for the tariffs by the by by the, the the 19th century, Britain would have been importing 20 to 100 times as much wine from all other, from all countries combined as they did, in fact. And they would have become fat and lazy and never <laughs> produced the great expansion of the 19th century. But let's put that to the side for a moment. And I want to I want talk. We we started this. Uh, this com this piece of the conversation talking about the quote insignificance of wine. And so one of the facts is that it played a crucial role, the, the protection of the tariffs on French wine, which ironically don't protect a British wine industry, instead protect a substitute, the British beer industry, uh, and help create that industry and, and let it thrive for what it might not otherwise have been. But what's the impact on France? Because you'd think, okay, so they can't sell wine to, to England, so their so their wine sales plummet. In, in America today, if we said, you know, California wine, which is very popular, uh, they they can't export to to Japan or China. We'd say, ah, so so what? Was it important for France? No, I don't think so. I don't think it was important enough to cripple the economy or things like that. So I think it was painful. I think it was very painful for them. I think the big change is that one of the things it did is that it promote it pushed the French to try to get around the tariff by by producing higher and higher quality wine. That is to sort of say, um, the, the 18th century was a period of great research and innovation in, in France, and a lot of their best products got exported to Britain, precisely because the only way they could at least partially get around the tariff was export higher quality goods. But one thing I learned from your book, which, which did surprise me, is the importance of wine as an export good generally. Mm -hmm. Right, it's a. It was a major economic. Yes, it, it was arguably. I mean, throughout the 18th and 19th century, for France worldwide, it was often the second or third largest cash crop for export. So it was a major exportable product, and it was very important in in the overall trade. And I certainly had big impacts on the the, the price of land in in the various areas and things of that sort. Because even though the volume of wine that they were exporting was small, given that the value was high and given that this was stuff at the margin that was being adjusted for various reasons that had that has big effects. You can often have something be small in volume but large in value and 
depending upon the economics of it, it can still have very big effects in terms of sort of the way land or inputs are used or things of that sort. So let's move forward to the to the nineteenth century. Well, I, I think you, you you skip over something important. It was the third, which is the third part of my title, yeah. which is the taxes part. Go ahead. Um, and I think this is an important part of the story. So there's an unfinished part, which which is a big part of the book, which is the fact that now with beer and domestic brewers and domestic distillers making so much money, would you expect the state would let them keep that money? Right. So the state keeps out the French wine. Right. Creates this thriving, artificially healthy, although it could might have been healthy, but much healthier than it otherwise would have been British uh, brewing. brewing business, beer business, and um, the what state, happened? the government says, "Hmm, that's right." The government says, "Why don't we tax you?" That is to say, it it solves for the state a big problem they'd had in the 17th century, which is in the 17th century there were lots of political reasons why it was difficult to raise taxes. Very often, raising taxes led to greater evasion. And it, as they understood in the 17th century, for instance, attempts to raise taxes on beer often didn't bring that much extra revenue. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of resistance. And the uh, increase in revenue from raising t- domestic taxes on beer were often not worth the effort. When you could switch to French wine if beer got expensive. Okay, or other kinds of products, yeah. or simply people evaded, simply because beer were, was small producers that were very hard to tax. It was not just the shipping to wine. Transactions cost yeah. of collecting were just enormous. What happens now? Now the British government has both a carrot and a stick. That is to sort of say, they keep out wine, but they sort of say, you know, if we want to keep this protection, you'd better pay up your taxes. And moreover, an alliance forms between the state and the leading brewers. Now all of a sudden, the brewers get the state to encourage oligopoly. The state moves yeah. from encouraging free trade in beer, by which meant the, the ability domestic, to... Domestic. Domestic Domestic freedom. By what start they a by brewery, f- etc. Exactly. They go to having limited production in the sense that they limit entry very severely. You go from having hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of small brewers to basically having less than 20 major brewers. In fact, a, a dozen dominant brewers who are an oligopoly. Their prices are regulated and controlled by the state. Moreover, they ask for that regulation. Why do they do that? Because it's easier to maintain an oligopoly if your prices can be monitored and if your controls can be monitored from the outside. So from the standpoint of the state, having a highly concentrated group of producers makes them easier to deal with politically. From the standpoint of the producers, they are willing to be monopolized the quid pro quo is they'll pay a higher tax, but they'll get gonna, monopoly profits. They're going to get higher prices pre-tax. That's right. Post-tax, it, higher post, revenue per. Yeah. That's right. And effectively, the, the loser in this is the consumer. And in a world in which there's very very weak consumer power and ability to, to oppose the government in these regards, having industry side with government in this regard allows them to raise taxes very highly. Moreover, this allows high taxes not just directly on beer, but indirectly for everything related to beer. So they're making money in the customs, they're making money from beer, they're making money from distillery, they're making money from taxes on hops, but they're also making money from taxes on sugar. This is where the sugar thing comes in. The sugar tariff is a very big part, but sugar is the largest single input to producing a great deal of alcohol. That is very often, when alcohol is insufficiently alcoholic, when alcoholic products, you use sugar for that. So a lot of distilling requires huge amounts of sugar, and so taxes. So if you look at the um, sum total of all the earnings on things related to alcohol, it could be as much as 20-25% of the British budget. Why is this very important? Because the British state, that is their ability to collect money, 
the revenues to the state grow roughly five times the size of GDP in the 18th century. That is to say, in the time of Adam Smith, when Britain is talking about, you know, Adam Smith is writing about the importance of you know, free trade and of limited, open markets. Limited government. Limited <clears throat> government, etc. The British state is growing at a rate faster than any other country in Europe. Revenues what they, are, and what are they doing with the money? They're using it to fund war. Yeah. Britain is much smaller than France, but notice in the 18th century, they either defeat or tie the French most. That is everything. The, the major loss is, of course, the, the, the American War of Independence. That's when, the, so in some sense, the, the eh, French are getting... Yeah, eh, they lost one. <laughs> that's right. But, but the rest, sort of the, the, in, in the, 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 basically the wars of North America, the, the British are mostly kicking the French rear ends throughout most of the 18th century. And part Gary of the reason Gary, for I that is, the is money. Um, you're saying that the that the that the French had trouble collecting money at the same rate the British had, and therefore fund their public sector activity, which at the time was war, war, which is warfare. In fact, Britain and Fran- or certainly Britain, was at war. I believe almost literally fifty percent of the of the 18th century. That is, every other year of the 18th century, Britain was at war somewhere in the world. And the big source of their ability to conduct those wars and be and expand their power was their ability to raise taxes. And the relative raise taxes was partially centered on this domestic compromise where they could raise excises and not get a ruckus from the major political powers. Doesn't that help explain why the standard of living in, in Britain was sort of maybe not as high as it otherwise might have been? Well, this is an issue that I speculate on, but I cannot prove. Right. That is to sort of say a puzzle for economic historians is that although Britain is the seat of the Industrial Revolution in the late 18th century, that is from the, from the mid-1700s through the early 1800s, Britain has the Industrial Revolution and is first in the world with industrialization. All work by economic historians suggests that the standard of living of Britain does not rise very much from about the mid-1700s to the mid-1800s. And it, one possibility is obviously the fact it's on those that, boats. <laughs> that is to say the tax burden of the Hanoverian state is so great that it is to some extent crushing the economic growth. But that's a conjecture which requires proof. And I, I, I'm, I'm not going to say more than it's, it's a good idea. It right. might or might not be I correct. But I, but I always like to emphasize the fact that war is bad for the economy, contrary to sort of the received wisdom that I think some people have, that war stimulates the economy, that it helped us get out of the Great Depression. Uh, I think that's not true. Uh, I don't think war is good for the economy. And I don't think it was good for the for the uh, for the British uh, standard of living in the 19th century. But as you say, it's a speculation. On the other hand, you also have to be very careful about the fact. It's not like, unfortunately, you don't get to pick and choose, right? As to sort of say, you might have sort of said, well, the Britain should have only engaged in defensive wars right, and not offensive they, wars. They did all different kinds. They That's right. Active. They did all different kinds. And unfortunately, it's a big, messy story. It's a big, messy story. And unfortunately, in the real, in the real world, you don't get to have sort of a, a finely grained choice of, with the wars. And some historians have made the argument that in some sense, if one thinks it necessary for the British to sort of both protection of the sea lanes and maintenance of, 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 of their independence, that you have to accept this as a cost of it. And yeah, I'm not sure that's right or not. And I, again, again, it's a, it's a plausible story. But as I think I've, I should be emphasized by now, I think plausible stories need to be shown, not merely asserted. Right. Uh, well, let's turn to that. A couple of plausible stories you hear, and I want to get your reaction because uh, uh, these are important issues that, that are still around today. Uh, what you're saying is that the British success of the – 19th century cannot solely be attributed to its embrace of free trade because 
for at least half of that century, it was pretty protectionist, although let's again emphasize it was increasingly free trade. It just wasn't a free trade nation with Correct. all barriers down. Uh, France was doing uh, following a very similar path, starting actually at a, a lower level. So again, the revisionist point you make, which I like, is that France was really the great – you could argue that France was the great free trade nation of the 19th century, uh, that they went uh, – they started at a lower rate and also quickly – not quickly, steadily is the right word, word I would use, moved toward freer trade. So where does that leave us in in the role of trade and development? And, and I want to add a third puzzle, piece of the puzzle, which is that a lot of modern-day protectionists in the United States uh, – Pat Buchanan and his ilk, uh, and there's probably a few scholarly folks on his side, not too many, but but the, the sort of populist free trade, uh, populist protectionists of our day, will point to the late 19th century as the glory days of the U.S. economy. Strange idea, really, uh, but that's their claim. That that's when we the economy was really thriving. It really took off, and there was good, obviously very high growth in the U.S. economy in the late 19th century. And they claim that the cause of that was protectionism because, after all, the U.S. was not a great free trading nation. The U.S. had high tariffs in the late 19th century. Supposedly, that led, led, allowed us to industrialize, and we need to emulate that period today to regain our industrial base, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's a, an absurd claim. Uh, as uh, I may have pointed out here before, uh, the U.S. manufacturing output today is – Many times what it was in uh, in 1970, despite the fact that employment is a smaller fraction of the overall uh, employment, manufacturing employment is a fraction of what it was, and, but our, our manufacturing sector is thriving. It's because of high productivity uh, and it would be a mistake to return to the 19th century. But let's, let's go to the 19th century intellectually and ask uh, two questions and try to tie them into Britain and France. Uh, America was a protect had, had tariffs in the late 19th century uh, and was successful. So, so comment on that and and talk talk about England and France's uh, success as well. I'd like to talk about England and France first, and I'd like to do it by, in some sense, slightly deterring you from the point you wanted to get at, which is the debate about the role of of free trade in international trade. I think the more important point to make is that free trade, at least with respect to trade between nations, was of secondary importance for much of the late 18th and early 19th century. That is to sort of say the relevant problem for free trade for Britain and France was domestic trade. Today, we don't think about this as much of an issue because we take for granted the virtues of having an open domestic market. But in fact, for the 18th century, and I would argue for the early 19th century, the really big problem, particularly for France, was not its trade with other nations. The really big problem was internal trade. France, for instance, one of the problems that led to the French Revolution was the fact that France was a patchwork of different tax regimes and tax areas with very different rules and regulations across parts of France. Indeed, before the British tariffs, arguably it was easier for Bordeaux, say, to trade with London than it was for Bordeaux to trade with Strasbourg. That is to sort of say, in 1650 or 1720, crossing the French nation and making that trade involved many difficulties, involved a variety of different tariffs, regulations, and tax regimes that caused enough high transactions costs to hinder trade. And this was a big issue in the 18th century. So very often when people like Adam Smith were speaking about free trade, they didn't predominantly mean free trade 
in the international sense, the way we talk about it today, but they meant free trade in exchange. general. Exchange. In general. They meant exchange in general. And a lot of that debate was targeted at domestic trade. And I would argue where Britain was almost certainly superior to France was that by encouraging a national market, that is both through the improvement of transportation mechanisms, through the rise of private roads and private um, construction of various kinds, and through the making of laws to break down local and provincial monopolies. Britain worked to encourage domestic trade, which was an extremely important and was a precursor to the fact that they, so they were able to benefit from their genuine move towards free trade at the end of the 19th century. In my view, that move towards free trade becomes amplified by the fact that their domestic market is essentially open and strong. France has to go through a lot of struggle to improve the domestic market. And indeed, a lot of the things that Napoleon tried to implement when he was head of France was to impose a uniform set of rules and regulations on the French economy, precisely correct for the fact that France in the 18th century, in the old regime, the Ancien Regime, had had a patchwork of rules and regulations which had limited trade. This was true across Europe. And so, for instance, the, the ways in which the various German states came together to form modern Germany started out with a customs union, the Zollverein, and the Zollverein was initially designed to basically remove many of the tariffs between the German states and to sort of have a unified trading system between them as a precursor to the creation of political union. And in much the same way, all over Europe, sort of, there's problems about trade between states and trade within states. And for large countries like France, the problem of trade within states is of, of primary importance. And I would argue that those problems... They overwhelmed the... Overwhelmed the problem of, of, of trade. That is to sort of say trade was relatively small. And similarly, for Britain, I would sort of say the rise in the British productivity caused by technological expansion, that is to sort of say the Industrial Revolution and the way in which new technologies in agriculture and industry came into play so improved the British economy that, again, I think it overwhelmed the problems of their, their, their tariffs. That doesn't mean... The British did not do well because of the tariffs. I think this is the mistake protectionists make. That is to sort of say, looking at a simple they correlation. They see correlation. They see in correlation. Um, for instance, protectionists who worry about that often worry about, say, the twin deficits. One of the, one of the factoids I like to, or facts actually, I actually like to tell people is that I believe from about 1750 to 1914, there may not have been a single year, except for a couple of war years, which are ambiguous, but there may not have been a single year in which Britain ran a trade surplus. Right. Now, you and I have looked at that data t together a while back. And, and I think Britain had a trade deficit for every single year from 1715 to, to 1914. That's while they sort of Britain ruled the waves and had protection and was the dominant trader in the world. Yeah. And I always love it when people say, yeah, trade deficit's unsustainable. Well, England years, <laughs> long time. <laughs> for a very, very, very long time and thrived through most of that period, that's right. of course. Um, uh, but, so, but the so point I think, you make, I, I just want to add one footnote to that because I think that's a fascinating story about the internal trade, the role of technology, which I think people often treat as exogenous, meaning just a force of nature, people figure out new stuff. To the extent that your market is unified, your domestic market in terms of regulation, that you can trade freely across uh, jurisdictions within your country, you start to get some economies of scale. Without that freedom, either because it's just too costly or it's literally banned, uh, when local forces are, are so dominant within a country, 
you take away the economies of scale and the return to technology is really quite minimal because what's the point of picking cotton more quickly if you're only going to sell it to your neighbors? The point of picking cotton more quickly and more cheaply is to sell it to your neighbors one county over, then one state over, then one region over, and then ideally one nation over. But uh, what it suggests is that – I don't know if this is true. It just comes to me that that the British innovation – of the 19th century, which was extraordinary and in and, and the Industrial Revolution and the, the period before, slightly before that, partly was driven by the fact that they were a more successful nation for domestic trade, uh, that other nations couldn't – France, Germany, the German states of the time, which of course wasn't a nation until 1870, a unified nation, that they had that handicap. That that the that the application of the technology was not going to be very useful if it was only going to be for a very local set of of, uh, of trade. Indeed, and I think that this is an issue that the American revolutionaries emphasized a lot. I mean, the American revolutionaries, partly keying off ideas that were percolating in Britain, made a big point about the fact that there should be open uh, interstate commerce. Right? And so, so 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 issues about interstate commerce in the thirteen colonies. Was uh, uh, were very important for considerations of growth, so that yeah. they were well aware of the fact that, in some sense, domestic trade was of, of paramount importance. This is not um, a justification of tariffs, but it is a way of pointing out how both those both in favor or opposed to international free trade often use two superficial measures of when trade is beneficial or not beneficial, and these are sort of complicated issues. I think as a general rule of thumb, free trade is genuinely a a good thing, and I think it's very hard to find evidence that free trade is generally harmful to nations. At the same time, supporters of free trade should acknowledge that it's no panacea. There's no no wonder drug that simply because you open up trade that, that all these things open up in the world. That is to sort of say, put it another way, to put it in the modern context, a nation which is corrupt, inefficient, and has a poorly functioning domestic market may not be dramatically helped by opening up their trade. It may be, but it may not be. It's a little complicated. It depends on the way in which the trade is opened up. Well, in my conversation with William Bernstein, I don't remember if it came up, but it's certainly in his book, he cites the work of economic historians uh, who, who claim that the impact of trade on growth is very small, the measured impact. That's right. And my, my counter to that and again, I can't remember if we actually talked about it, but my counter to that is, well, it's really hard to measure. And, and what you're suggesting is that certainly you'd want to control for other factors that would hold a nation back. Do you want to talk about that literature for a minute? Do you think that's a, that liter- those findings are reliable? I, I'm not really sure what I can say about that, except I, I would sort of say, in, in general, put, put it this way. I think uh, until recent economic history, the, the natural barriers to international trade are so great that it's hard for trade to make that, that big of an impact. And moreover, put it another way, most countries are so poorly run. That is to say, most countries of the world. Governance problems. Go- governance corruption. problems, corruption. But also, even in the, in the 17th, 18th century, the Western economies, the fact that the technologies were so inefficient meant that there was so much room for development that until you get that going, in some sense, the other things are secondary. The, the major, in my view, the major advantages of free trade, aside from the obvious ones, are dynamic. That is to sort of exactly. say, to the extent that you get trade, say, building up in certain ports or things of that sort, to the extent that that trade is not easily controlled by the powers that be, it becomes a force on the economy to liberalize generally. It becomes the areas that are benefiting from tre- free trade 
develop interest groups who can sustain future reforms and who can act as a lobby in favor of opening up instead of the usual habits which are that lobbies form which try to close up trade or limit um, product production for the benefit of some subgroups. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, we're almost out of time. We got, we got maybe five, ten minutes. I, I want to come back to the fascinating story you told of the political economy of uh, of Britain uh, in the early half of the 19th century and, and bring it forward a little bit. Um, your story that you tell in the book is that the standard story of England as free trader in 1842 is not true, uh, that France was more of a free trader than England, and that England was starting to become a free trader well before the repeal of the Corn Laws in 1842 and slowly and steadily did become freer. But it really wasn't until about 1870 that the average level of tariff in both England and France reached what we would call a, quote, low level, about under 10%, right. uh, which is sort of what – we're stuck with as a, quote, free trade regime. Uh, so there's still some protection, but it, it's relatively low in percentage terms. What changed in the political economy? Why is it – why did England uh, – you told the story about this um, nexus, this this sort of um, – the collusion of the beer industry with the government. And by the way, I have to say it reminds me very depressingly – of the tobacco settlement, uh, a situation where in, in the name of something really supposedly lovely, children's health or health overall, the government has essentially created an oligopoly of a handful of tobacco makers who they tax heavily. They generate an enormous amount of revenue from those folks. Um, but the industry likes it because they have a much uh, higher uh, monopoly position, much less uh, competition the way the law was structured to keep out new entrants, just like your beer story, and it, it basically ratified an industry structure of a handful of producers. Uh, so essentially, it's very similar. It's a depressing story because it's really taxing not the tobacco companies and not the beer, beer company, the brewers, but taxing the tobacco users and the beer drinkers to finance the state, which is a, a kind of a depressing uh, thought to me. But um, – what happened to that alliance uh, in, in Britain? Why did it become by 1870 – I assume it was easier to buy French wine at that point. So yeah. something changed. I, I, think the big, I think the big thing that changed is, is simply that the role of the elements that were – that is to say the groups that were benefiting from protection were getting relatively weaker at a time when the industrialists who wanted freer trade were getting much stronger. That's one. The second thing is that – in the 1840s, helped help by that technology. That's that, right. So it's driven. It's a technology-driven story. That's right. The other story is that as early as the 1840s, actually, the British contemplated opening up a trade in alcohol. That is, they understood a parliamentary inquiry in the 1840s showed that lowering tariffs on French wine would raise revenues in customs. So they understood that the tariffs on wine were so high that lowering them would actually raise customs revenues. But they were worried that this would, in the short run, lead to such disruptions that revenue would go down. And the British were very concerned about revenue. So the big change was that in the 1850s, when Britain started experimenting with the income tax and other taxes, the fiscal pressure on the government to worry about the revenues from wine and beer was diminishing. And as a result, oh, yeah. in 1860, the British concluded an agreement with France 
called the Cobden Chevalier Treaty of 1860, which basically lowered, which removed French, the remaining French prohibitions on a few British products and lowered French tariffs in exchange for the British lowering tariffs on French wine and adjusting their tariffs accordingly. And the 1860 treaty is very important because once the 1860 treaty was signed between Britain and France, there's a bilateral most favored nation treaty. The other countries in Europe looked at that and said, oh my God, the two leading powers in Europe are now signed in a free trade agreement that is unprecedented. If we don't sign with them, we're going to be locked out of this trade. So interestingly enough, the bilateral trade agreement between Britain and France led to a trigger system in which most of the other European powers quickly signed most favored nation bilateral agreements with Britain and France. So that in a short period of time, most of Europe was locked in a series of interlocking bilateral agreements in which the benefits of free trade to one group were then spread to the entire group. And that that's a more important story than the England going it alone. Correct. Free trade story that, that is that absolutely the right. world. But it is also interesting, I hadn't thought about it, that in that post-1860 period, and correct me if I'm wrong, England and France ultimately become allies That's right. in World War One and World War Two, as opposed to uh, enemies. Uh, enemies as they were previous to that. Indeed. And indeed, that is the one thing. People were worried after the end of the Napoleonic Wars that Britain and France would get at it again. It's very interesting that throughout the long 19th century, which people think of as from the end of the Napoleonic Wars to the beginning which of World War One, 1815 to 1914, that is to sort of say that there was no conflict between Britain and France, and that in some sense they do become allies, and that you don't have something, you don't really have a, a cataclysmic yeah. world war. And part of that surely has to do with the interlocking of their economies. Uh, of, of their economies. Oh, yeah. At the same time, there's a cautionary story for us, is that people felt that the interlocked economies at the end of the 19th and early 20th century were so strong that something like World War One was inconceivable. It could never happen, of course. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's very interesting how these things have play out. William Bernstein last week pointed out that the EU is uh, seems unlikely to go to war with each their their states, partly because they're so integrated. But then again, you never know. I just want to make uh, one thought on the the um, make sure I understand what you just said. Did England have in the post eighteen fifty period? You said they experimented with income tax and other taxes. Most of us today think of tariffs as a very unimportant part of the, of government revenue because they are. They're trivial. They're dwarfed. Dwarfed isn't even a big enough word <laughs> to speak in a strange oxymoron. Dwarf isn't a big enough word. Um, income taxes, corporate taxes dwarf individual income tax and corporate income tax dwarf uh, the revenue that the U.S. government gets from, from tariffs. But in the 19th century – for most nations, that was not true. That tariffs were a major source of revenue, correct? The excises and for Britain especially, the excises and tariffs. You say excises, that domestic would be on beer. excises. That would be on, on the, beer and on beer and other goods, and on customs tariffs on imports were the major source of revenue. When did the income tax start to become important? This is a uh, little more complicated, and we won't really get into that. But the income tax doesn't really become important, you'd say, till the 20th century. So, when you say, but I thought I heard you say, the, the, in starting the 1850s, they start having an early, an early version of the income tax, which is still small, but it's something that they're they're, they're thinking is, is 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 important. So you cannot argue that the decline in tariffs was was due to say an increasing uh, tax source coming from somewhere else well, in the late 19th but century. But that is what's trickier. They are. There are tax sources coming from somewhere else. They're small at the margin, but they're, they, they, they're getting some trade-offs. That is to say, they're, they're considering various possibilities in these regards. 
and uh, and and they are switching off to other kinds of things. Well, thanks for a, a really fascinating conversation, John. My guest today has been John Nye, author of War, Wine, and Taxes. The Political Economy of Anglo-French Trade, 1689 to 1900. My colleague here at George Mason University, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you very much for having me, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.